Listen now to the word of God. Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? Not, no, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks after God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. No, now we know that Whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be, made, may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So reads God's most holy word. We finished last Sunday with this observation. What Paul says, or what he is saying in verses 28 and 29 of chapter 2, is that favorable standing with God, or praise as it is called in those two verses, praise from God is not achieved by physical descent, by Jewish ethnicity, or by the physical sign of the Old Covenant, which was always intended to indicate a heart that was sensitive to God. Rather, favorable standing with God is reserved for those who actually display that sensitive heart, regardless of whether they bear the physical sign. That's how we finished. That was the statement that we made. Listen one more time. What Paul is saying in verses 28 and 29 of chapter 2 is that favorable standing with God, or praise as it is called there, 
is not achieved by physical descent or by the physical sign of the old covenant, which was always intended to indicate a heart that was sensitive to God. Rather, favorable standing with God is reserved for those who actually display that sensitive heart regardless of whether they bear the physical sign. That means regardless of whether they are Jews or Gentiles, regardless of whether they are part of the Old Covenant people or part of the nations, if their heart is sensitive toward God, they enjoy the favor that was being talked about there, the praise from God. Our natural follow-up question to this is surely thus. Are you saying then that there's no advantage at all in being a Jew? And the way that we know we're following Paul's reasoning rightly through chapter 2, or really from chapter 1, 18 on through chapter 2 and now into chapter 3, is that this is the very question that he raises as chapter 3 begins. So we know we're tracking with him if that question comes to mind. Are we saying then that in this Christian faith that we understand from its Jewish roots, we heard the call of Abraham read this morning, that the Jew has no advantage? That's the question Paul raises as well. So if that's the question in your mind, you followed his thought perfectly, and it's time to move on into those questions and draw this section of Romans to a close. So we go on now to see why we might have been confused about matters related to the Jews by seeing how Paul answers this question and then a follow-up one in chapter 3 or the first two-thirds of chapter 3. If you looked in your bulletin last week, you saw that we were planning on doing Romans 3, 1 through 8 today. That's the text we were going to preach. And early in the week, I, I changed it to 3, 1 through 20. Because we need to see the comparison between the two questions that are asked in verse 1 and verse 9. We need to see how Paul answers them because that's going to be a lot more helpful to us. Did you hear that? Taking a little bit bigger chunk of Romans is going to be a lot more helpful to us than taking those two questions one at a time. We won't feel the tension or the contrast between them if we don't see them all together. So we're going to go on to see why we might have been confused about these matters. And it's because this is a complex subject, the matter of the Jews and salvation and how Old and New Covenant work together and the, old, the relationship between Old and New Covenant people of God. Virtually the same question can be answered in diametrically opposite ways. And that tends to generate some confusion. Virtually the same question can be answered in diametrically opposite ways, as we'll see here in the two sections of today's passage, 1 through 8 and then 9 through 20. So let's see how Paul does this. Let's move through his two answers here, and that's essentially the outline. You see that printed in your bulletin. First of all, verses 1 through 8, much advantage in being a Jew. And then verses 9 through 20, no advantage in being a Jew. How does this work? Well, in the wake of chapter 2, here's how Paul actually worded his question there in verse 1 of chapter 3. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? That's what he asks. And that really is the same question big picture-wise. 
all right? He's just asking one question, even though he's posed two there. And although it could be helpful to answer each question separately with a bit more detailed answer, that would be beneficial. But we're not going to do that this morning because Paul didn't do that. Notice that he showed that he is most interested in the big picture here because he gives a single answer to these two questions as he's posed them. What is that answer? Verse 2, much in every way. So, questions, then what advantage has the Jew or what is the value of circumcision? Answer, much in every way. Seems a little different than what we read in verses 28 and 29. Thus the confusion. So let's just keep moving through the text. Um, Much in every way, he says, to begin with, so there's going to be a list, evidently, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. That is, they were entrusted with the very words of God. That's um, how the NIV translated it. They were entrusted with uh, the whole revelation of God. That's New Living Translation. Although, just most accurate word for word, ESV, NSV, King James even, um, they have been entrusted with the oracles of God, the Word of God. Israel received the Old Testament Scriptures. That's where Paul begins to identify the advantage that they have, the value in circumcision. Israel received the Old Testament scriptures. They received the law and the prophets, as we'll see mentioned just in the very next verse after today's text, verse 21. They received the writings, history, wisdom, poetry. They received the oracles of God. This is an advantage of immeasurable worth. We ourselves have the Old Testament scriptures. We've read from them this morning. And we have them because they were entrusted to Israel. What a blessing. So that's the first. That's the first advantage. And it seemed like Paul intended to give a longer list of advantages since he started with to begin. But this is the only one he listed here. He then proceeded to expand on the implications that resulted from Israel's having been entrusted with the oracles of God, and he never got back to a list, at least not here. But before we go on to unpack the list of implications that resulted from Israel's being entrusted with the oracles of God, we should note that he did come back to this very subject a bit later in this letter. In chapter 9, in fact, verses 4 and 5 and 6, In verse 4 of chapter 9, Paul wrote there, They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Wow, what a list of blessings that could have been included here and expanded upon But it's not as though Paul lost his way in the middle of his writing, though some want to suggest that. It's that he wanted to drill in to this point that we're going to be looking at this morning. But there is a list in answer to that question. What advantage in being a Jew? What advantage in circumcision? Much in every way. And putting a few verses of chapter 3 together with a few verses from chapter 9, We can actually see that list. Continuing on, though, in chapter 9 for just a moment, Paul wrote there in the very next verse, 
All right, so to them belong the patriarchs and from their race according to the flesh is Christ who is God over all, blessed forever, amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. It's one of the reasons we link this to chapter 9 because that's exactly the point Paul makes in the very next verse here in chapter 3. It's not as though the word of God has failed. And then he makes this astounding statement. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. The same basic point that he had just made there at the end of chapter 2. So very much you see here in chapter 9 on the same subject again. He continued on there in chapter chapter 9. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. So just being born into Abraham's physical line is not what makes you a child of Abraham in the way that Paul is talking about it here in Romans. Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but, quote, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God. This means it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. What a massively important biblical theological statement this is. So it's perhaps not so much that Paul wanted to drill into the statement that he made right here at the beginning of chapter 3 before going on to his list. It may be that he wanted to postpone the remainder of the list as set up for that amazing work of theology that he does in chapters 9 through 11. But make no mistake, we are on the same subject here in chapter 3 as we are talking about the lostness of the Jews in comparison to the lostness of the Gentiles and how to answer this question, is there any advantage in being a Jew? The first answer that has come is yes, there is much in every way. So an amazing biblical theological statement, and we look forward to getting to that in chapters 9 and 10 and 11, but we'll also continue unpacking the statements about the identity of the people of God as we move through this letter. Back here in chapter 3, what does Paul have to say on the heels of identifying Israel's advantage as having received the oracles of God? What is the next thing he says? How does he unpack that? How does he build on it? A question. Verse 3, what if some were unfaithful? That's strange. Is there any advantage in being a Jew? Yes, much in every way. They've received the oracles of God. Well, what if some are unfaithful? That's a strange question. What is he asking here? What if some are unfaithful? Well, God has given them his word. The oracles of God have been entrusted to his covenant people. The assumption is that they would keep his word. Just due to its value alone, if for nothing else, if not for their love for him, just the joy of having received the word of God. So their assumption would be that they would keep it, or the assumption would be that he would enable them to keep it in demonstration of his great power. But neither of these happened. They didn't keep his word. What if some are unfaithful? That's an interesting question. If God has favored these people and they're living 
outside of that favor, what do you make of that with regard to the people and God? So it's a fair question. What if some were unfaithful? And some were indeed unfaithful, right? We've read the passage now. Some were indeed unfaithful. In fact, we see in verses 10 through 18, all of them were. Some may have been a little bit more faithful than others, but when assessed by the need for salvation, absolutely all of them were unfaithful to the Word of God. So Paul's first question here is almost rhetorical here in verse 3. What if some were unfaithful? It's almost rhetorical because the answer is, well, duh, they all were. And before the end of this chapter, before the end of this passage, we see it. We see it laid out. So his first question is almost rhetorical, more as a setup for the second question, which identifies the core issue that moved him away from listing any further advantages at this point because he takes off on this answer. So verse 3, what if some were unfaithful? Set up, here it comes. Does their faithfulness, does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? You can see where he's going here. And the answer, verse 4, by no means. By no means does the faithlessness of God's people nullify the faithfulness of God. You don't draw conclusions about the faithfulness of God and His reliability and His truthfulness based on the behavior of His children. Interesting. The answer, by no means, let God be true, though everyone were a liar. That's going to need a little explanation, but it's a pretty central statement in this passage of Scripture. Thus, it's my title this morning, Let God Be True. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. What is Paul saying here? What he's saying here is not that God will be true in contrast to lying. It's not telling you God is not a liar. Let God be true. It's not saying essentially, in one way it may be, but that's not primarily, it's not the heart of what's being said. Rather, it's saying that he'll be true in contrast to being unreliable. You can count on him. He's faithful. That's why he's anchored to this question of faithfulness or faithlessness on the part of his people. Let God be true. He will be true in contrast to being not true, but not true being understood primarily as being not reliable. You can't count on what he says. He'll prove to be faithful in all that he says and does. Similarly, then, in the second half of this statement, characterizing people as liars is not saying that they are never telling the truth, but again, that they're unfaithful, that they are unreliable. And his meaning seems to be not so much that God is always reliable and his people always aren't, but rather what Paul seems to be saying by this statement is that God is always reliable even when his children aren't. You don't draw conclusions about the reliability of God by seeing how reliably his children live out the principles of the oracles that he's entrusted to them. And then he moves off into a quote from David's psalm of repentance with regard to his sin with Bathsheba. The next thing Paul does here in response to his answer, by no means let God be true, though everyone was a liar, 
is to quote Psalm 51, verse 4. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Surely this confirms that God is faithful. He's faithful in David's life, reliable in his judgments. But there is particular benefit in Paul selecting this particular statement from the Old Testament to underscore the reliability and faithfulness of God. Paul is using this text to demonstrate that God is proved faithful not just when he keeps his promises to bless, but that God is also faithful when he keeps his promises to judge. That both his response of blessing and his response of judgment are expressions of his faithfulness, of his holiness, of his purity, of his righteousness. And so therefore, when Paul reaches to grab an indicator of God's faithfulness in this present argument where he's, where he's placing under the judgment of God, Jew and Gentile alike, all humanity as in need of God's salvation, he's pointing to the fact that God is faithful even when he judges. And David is acknowledging that in his psalm of repentance. And now the reader of the letter to the Romans is saying, we have a faithful God. Even his punishment, even his wrath is just and righteous and dependable, reliable, a faithful manifestation of his character. He's not just faithful when he promises to bless. He's also faithful when he promises to judge. And that calls for one final set of clarifying questions before we move on to the next big question in this text brings us, uh, this, this section, 1 through 8, is really considered to be the closing paragraph of the argument that Paul formed in chapter 2. So if you're outlining it, you could say in chapter 1, 18 through 32, you hear that all the Gentiles are lost. In chapter 2, verse 1, through chapter 3, verse 8, you hear that all the Jews are lost. And verses 1 through 8 of chapter 3 are really the, the concluding statement of what he has taught in chapter 2. And then verses 9 through 20 end up being the concluding statement to everything he said since 118. So we've got two concluding paragraphs in front of us this morning, and that's why it's also helpful to see them together. One, closing off the immediate point that was being made, the Jews are lost. One, closing off the entire argument, Jews and Gentiles together stand under the judgment of God and in need of his great salvation. So that's how essentially the text is working. So this calls, that when, when, when uh, Paul quotes this Psalm 51 verse 4 here, as an affirmation of the fact that God is faithful even when he judges, it calls for one final set of clarifying questions in this section of verses 1 through 8 that brings chapter 2 to a conclusion. You can see it starting in verse 5. But if our righteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. Paul makes this last statement, I speak in a human way, because this, this question in verse 5 is a twisted argument that's levied against him by enemies of the gospel. 
if our righteous, unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, then why does he inflict his wrath on us? That's just argumentative. Do you hear it? It's a similar question that comes up again in chapter 6 a couple of times. Chapter 6, verse 1, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Or chapter 6, verse 15, are we to sin because we are no longer under law but under grace? The answer to that question, is is God unrighteous to inflict His wrath on us? The answer is by no means. In fact, the answer is by no means to all three questions. Right here in chapter 3, verse 5, and then in chapter 6, verse 1, and then again in chapter 6, verse 15. By no means, all three times, is the answer to this question. Here, by no means, for then how could God judge the world? Now that is a little bit strange and hard to follow, all right? But do you get it? Do you hear how it flows? If the fact that God's judgment of His unrighteous people magnifies His glory means that those people have been treated unjustly, do you understand the question? If the fact that God's judgment of His unrighteous people magnifies His glory, that happens, and that's what He's saying, magnifies the glory of God, that His unrighteous people have been judged then how is he going to judge the world under the very same circumstances? If he's proved unjust by pouring out judgment on his people who are sinning, then he's going to be proved unjust again when he pours out judgment on the entire world who is sinning. But this is the question that Paul has been asked. If the fact that God's judgment of his unrighteous people magnifies his glory means that those people who have magnified His glory by sinning, right, have been treated unjustly, then God couldn't judge the rest of the world for the very same reason. Thus, that's what raises the question here in verse 7. If through my lie God's truth abounds to His glory, if through my sinfulness, my lying, let God be true though every man a liar, so if my sinfulness brings about God's glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? All I've done is set the context to magnify His glory, speaking in a human way. The follow-up question then is virtually the same as in chapter 6, verse 1. You see it there in, chapter, in verse 8. Why, do, uh, why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, that's how we know. That's one of those phrases that lets us know that Paul was facing some opposition in Rome. But once all this is clarified, once we hear and understand the question, Paul doesn't even dignify this question with an answer. That's what tells you that he thinks that it's um, argumentative. It's trying to change the point. It's, it's trying to uh, defend my own righteousness in comparison to God's, and he's not going to have any part of it. So he doesn't even answer the question. If he had answered it, he'd probably have said something like this. God doesn't need your sin to magnify His truth and glory. You're judged for your sin in expression of His truth and glory. In line with the argument, that's probably how Paul would have answered it. But he didn't answer it. All he wrote here was, their condemnation is just. These folks are missing the point. If somebody's going to ask that question, you know what? I'm not going to say it 
be eternally damned. Their condemnation is just. And that's what finishes the conclusion to chapter 2. Now we're on to Paul's next major question in verse 9 that takes us through to the end of the chapter. It's a question that's not entirely easy to translate, but I'm not going to take time to explain why that is because the wording that we see here in the ESV actually does cut through that confusion pretty well and gives us a reliable sense of his meaning. But I mention it just because if you read on this subject, you'll run into that. Um, verse 9 is a challenging one to translate. But we do believe it's asking essentially this question. What then? Are the Jews any better off? If we've heard, as we've heard this, and knowing that Jew and Gentile alike is under, under God's judgment, are they any better off at all? Now here's where we see the punch in Paul's argument here and the reason why we're doing this whole section of 1 through 20 together as a unit. We see the punch through this whole section of the spiritual lostness of both the Jews and the Gentiles from one, chapter 118 on. And we see it now because this question here in verse 9, as he's drawing this whole section to a close, is virtually the same one that he asked back in verse 1 as he was drawing chapter 2 to a close. There he asked, then what advantage has the Jew? And the answer, much in every way, which he explained. Now here, are the Jews any better off? Answer, no, not at all. Precisely the opposite answer. No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. So what is Paul saying here? What is Paul saying here? He's telling us that the Jews have a tremendous advantage given their role as the ones through whom God purposed to provide for the salvation of the world. But they have no advantage at all when standing before God as judge. They are just as lost and just as much in need of His salvation as every other person on the planet. That's what Paul's telling us in these concluding sections. And then he goes on to argue, helping us to see that this news shouldn't have been surprising to us at all. Because Scripture has always said this is so. This is how His Word reads. We read through that section of, of amazing statements, graphic statements, sometimes gross, grotesque statements about the lostness of the lost. And all of those are from the Word of God. Scripture has told us that this is true of all. And God's Word is reliable. Let God be true. Paul in this section, verses 10 through 18 then, just showers us with examples of how God surely is true. In sequence, he quotes from or alludes to Psalm 14, Psalm 53, Psalm 5, Jeremiah 5, Psalm 140, Psalm 10, Proverbs 1, Isaiah 59, and Psalm 36. With 
a phrase thrown in there that sounds like it's straight from Zechariah's song in Luke 1. He has strung together a list of, as commentators call it, loosely connected scriptures. We could take time and dig into the context of each one of these and go into the Old Testament background, and that's helpful. That's enjoyable Bible study, but this morning, we don't need that. We need to hear a set of loosely connected Old Testament statements that the judgment of God is on his people because of their sinfulness. It's no surprise to us what we're reading here in Romans 2 and 3 because God's word has said all along in undeniably graphic terms that Israel is in need of salvation. And their role in salvation history is being one, the one through whom the word of God is delivered and the Savior eventually comes plus all else that we read in that list in Romans 9, none of that removes the judgment of God from them for their sin. It just means that he are his, he, they are His chosen people through whom He is going to provide salvation. Bottom line, God's Word has told us all along that the Jews are lost and in need of salvation just like the rest of the world. And that's a summary of verse 19. And if the immense advantage of their multifaceted role in God's amazing salvation plan doesn't exempt the Jews from His judgment, His present and His coming judgment, then surely there's no hope for any other ethnicity to escape to escape it. Paul is locking down his conclusions here so that they're inescapable. If the Jews are lost, the Jews are lost in the need of salvation just like the rest of the world, verse 19, and if the immense advantage of their multifaceted role in God's amazing salvation plan doesn't exempt them from His judgment, then surely there's no hope for any other ethnicity to escape it either, apart from receiving the salvation that he supplies by faith that we're just about now ready to see in verses 21 through 26 of this chapter, God willing, next Sunday. Whether for Jews or for anyone else who's drawn to them to the oracles of God that has been delivered to Israel, whether the Jews or anyone else who's drawn to them, all that the oracles of God can provide is a knowledge of sin. An awareness that we're under God's judgment and in desperate need of His salvation. That's a summary of verse 20. Israel is in need of salvation. The world is in need of salvation. That's what the Old Testament law and the prophets point to. They also point to a coming new covenant when we will have the law of God written on our hearts and our consciences resensitized and we'll, we'll be raised from death unto life like, like old dead bones rising up to dance. There's all sorts of pictures of the coming new covenant in the old covenant, but no power to achieve that. Simply the promise that it's coming through 
the offspring of Abraham, whose arrival is greatly anticipated. And the promise of that we read this morning in Genesis 12. All stand in need of salvation. Every single human being who has ever lived stands equally in need of God's saving grace or the judgment of God will fall upon them. And that's our takeaway today. That's our takeaway. All human beings are, by their very nature as sinners, under God's judgment. So, all of you here today who have been saved from God's wrath by trusting in Christ, I urge you to give Him thanks and praise today. That's a miraculous gift. And we will find out in the next paragraph, it is a gift. It's not something we deserve. It's not something we earn. It's not something we even contribute toward. It's a gift. So if you find yourself in that place this morning of being one who knows he or she has been spared from the judgment of God, the wrath of God, by faith in Christ, give thanks and praise to God. And if you remain under God's judgment this morning, never having trusted Christ, then the only thing I can say is flee to Him today. Flee to Him today. Trust in Him as the one who has absorbed God's wrath against the sin of all who have believed in Him, all who have trusted in Him, the Savior and His Lord. Do that because there's no other way to be spared from the judgment of God that will fall. There's no other way to be saved. And this letter, more than any other, will make that abundantly clear. All that we have this morning, though, as we've come to chapter 3, verse 20, is a knowledge that we all need that. So if you've already received it, don't take it lightly. Thanksgiving and praise this morning is your proper response. If you haven't, the serious significance of that statement is inexpressible. Therefore, flee to Christ. My intent isn't to scare you into the kingdom. It's to reveal to you what the Word of God has said. And my friends, Jesus is your only hope in life and eternity. So now, join me in prayer. And we're going then to celebrate the death of the one who has absorbed the wrath of God on our behalf. And as I pray, Invite the musicians and the communion servers to come to the front. Heavenly Father, this is a serious word from you that we have read this morning. 
is a word that reminds us that we all together alike, regardless of our background, regardless of our privilege, regardless of our ethnicity, are all standing in need before a holy God for some form of absolution, some sort of cleansing, some sort of reconciliation to you that we have absolutely no ability to change of ourselves. So Father, my prayer is this morning that each one who knows the joy of sins forgiven in the Lord Jesus Christ would this morning, even, even more so than normal because it is the focal point of your word to us today, that each one of those would rejoice in the salvation they have received through Christ. In the miraculous, unexpressible grace that you have showered upon us in him. And Father, for each one who hasn't, I pray that by the work of your spirit, you might reveal to them the seriousness of the need, even right now in this hour, that while gathered with the body of Christ, they might find the help that they need as your grace is expressed to us from your word and also through one another in our fellowship. But now, Father, for all those who have trusted Christ as Savior, I pray that our thanksgiving and praise might take the form of obedience, participating together in the table of the Lord, where we celebrate the death of Christ that has absorbed your wrath, your judgment on our behalf. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.